Well, welcome back and to a special edition of Palestine Deep Dive. Thank you for joining us. Uh, at Palestine Deep Dive, we look at the big issues in the Middle East uh, and with a special focus on Palestine. And we also look at the wider global situation. Last week, we were discussing the US presidential elections. We'll be doing that again uh, later this week uh, with a guest I'll announce at the end. But today, for this special edition of our show, we're joined by Ben Jamal, director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, and Richard Sanders, who's an award-winning TV producer and journalist. And what we're going to discuss today, and we really do want to hear from all of you, by the way, please send in your questions. I know we have people from around the world watching this, so just because you're not in Britain doesn't mean to say that you can't get involved, because actually this is a broad argument. It's a broader debate about freedom of speech and the importance of being able to debate uh, issues around Palestine. And uh, in the British context, we will be looking at the suspension of the former leader of the UK Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, earlier this week. Um, and we will also be looking at the increasing concern that as a result of developments internationally, the Trump administration's relationship with Israel, the uh, deal of the century, uh, the, uh, the, the very, very strong push against uh, debate about Palestinian issues does mean that there, that there seems to be a degree of fear about discussing Palestine and the rights of Palestinians. So we want to look at that. Now, Richard um, has recently written two very widely shared pieces uh, on uh, the Middle East uh, for Middle East Eye. And in fact, when I was looking at the uh, media coverage of the uh, of the suspension of the leader of the UK Labour Party, I did notice that we had, um, from all the mainstream newspapers, uh, the Observer view, the Guardian view, the Times view, the Telegraph view, the Daily Mail view, the Sun view. And as hard as I tried to, f to, to find any distinguishing differences between them, I just couldn't. And the reason I think, um, and we, we'll come to you in a minute, Richard, the reason why I suspect you're uh, articles and the articles you've written with Peter Oborn have had a lot of currency out there um, is because actually uh, there is a different take, uh, a more uh, precise and more calibrated uh, a, a, a attempt to try and look at what is really going on behind the scenes and what it means. So look, I think without further ado, um, I think we should we should go straight to, to, to in fact, what the one thing that I did pick up was... Uh, uh, and I'll ask you to comment on it, Richard, is a, a letter that appeared actually in The Guardian uh, by a former uh, Labour MP, uh, Bob Marshall Andrews, who's also a QC. Now, uh, I've known Bob. I had to put my um, cards on the table. Uh, I've worked for the UN. I worked for Al Jazeera. But many years ago, eight years uh, for eight years, I was on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party. So I do know a little bit how these things work. Um, within Labour Party circles. So I was interested to see what Bob Marshall Andrews, who uh, is no uh, Corbynite, no left Labour left-winger. In fact, I think he's left the Labour Party. I think he's a member of the Liberal Democrats, had to say. I'll just read you this very briefly. He says, um, I've known Jeremy Corbyn for nearly 60 years. He has many faults. He was a hopeless leader of my then party with his lacklustre campaign directly which would directly cause the disaster of Brexit. I mean, it's a pretty hefty claim to make, but there you are. 
He's a decent, honorable man and a dedicated parliamentarian. He's about as anti-Semitic as the chief rabbi. His suspension from the Labour Party is a disgrace. He goes on to say, like many of us, he loathes Israel's present government and its treatment of the Palestinians. And in October 2009, I went to Gaza. I went as part of a European group of parliamentarians in the aftermath of Operation Cast Lead, a retaliatory attack on Gaza by Israel in which hundreds of Palestinians were killed, many of them civilians. The British contingent consisted of members of the Lords and Commons, including Corbyn, and it was led by the late Sir Gerald Kaufman, a hugely experienced and distinguished parliamentarian. He was a Jew and a supporter of Labour Friends of Israel. He was also a strong, persistent and highly articulate critic of Israel's policies. It cannot be said enough. Some of those who are apologists for Israel's conduct in Palestine persistently use the accusation of anti-Semitism as a weapon against their critics. It does their cause no service and could generate precisely the prejudice and hatred they purport to abhor. Bob Marshall, Andrews QC. I just read you that letter out because that was an outlaw, along with your piece. What is your take, Richard, on, on what has happened over the past week? Not, not just for Jeremy Corbyn as an individual, but for what this actually means for debate about uh, Palestine and also the debate about anti-Semitism? Well, I come at this really not so much from a political um, perspective, although I do to a degree, but primarily as a professional journalist and filmmaker. And um, I'm just, well, throughout this thing, I've been stunned by the lack of just professional scrutiny that is applied to so many of these stories and so many of these issues. It seems to me time and time again, things were being reported that really weren't being questioned at all. And, and, and very often things that didn't really make sense. Um, now with the um, EHRC report last week, Peter and I had originally done a piece on the Labour Party's leaked report back in February. Now, well, back in March, um, it was leaked. I, any, anyone who is as obsessively interested in this topic as I am, I would really recommend reading that report. It was widely maligned at the time as being put out to, to justify um, the, the Corbyn regime. It's actually an extraordinary piece of work. If you're coming at this as a historian or as a, as a professional journalist in, in years and decades to come, I'm quite sure when people re-explore this whole issue, they will, they will see that the absolutely invaluable resource is that leaked report. It's 851 pages long. It is astonishingly detailed. Um, it pre presents a very, very powerful case, uh, which of course was largely rejected at the time, but it was really, really well worth looking at. And it was quite a rather surprising story, um, you know, something I wasn't aware of at the time and many other people weren't. And when I actually bothered to read the whole EHRC report, which again, um, you know, it's always, a, it's always a good idea for journalists, just do your homework, because most people don't, in fact. I suspect there are very, very few people who actually read the whole EHRC report. If you read it carefully, and you do have to read it carefully, because there's a lot of joining up of dots required. Um, I don't know why that's required. I don't know why the EHRC report hasn't joined them up itself. But when you read it carefully, it actually vindicates the Labour Party's leaked report. Um, the fundamental thing 
it 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 it, it says is um it points very much towards the Labour Party's complaints procedure on anti-Semitism having been dysfunctional before April 2018. Now, that's not to say it doesn't make criticisms after that period. It does. But it's very hard to read it carefully without concluding that that is where the centre of gravity is. And, and this creates a huge problem for the leadership. Uh, and this is a thing that is not acknowledged in the report at all. It's not even referenced in the report. But for that entire period, which is two-thirds of the period that is under investigation in the HRC report, the people controlling the complaint separators are Corbyn's opponents. Not only are they Corbyn's opponents, they are precisely the people who then lined up to appear on the famous Panorama program, is Labour anti-Semitic, to accuse the party of anti-Semitism. Now, of course, their line of defense was always, well, the problem was, A, they disputed that they had been as inept as the leaked report portrayed them as being. Now, if you read it carefully, the EHRC report seems to indicate the leaked report. So, sorry, it, was, it gets a bit confusing, this, but the EHRC report clearly does indicate that the system was inept before April 2018. The problem you then have if it indeed was the case that these people were being hamstrung and thwarted by the leadership, is that the moment Jenny Corbyn and people sympathetic and supportive of Corbyn take over the machinery in the spring of 2018, disciplinary procedures for anti-Semitism just go through the roof. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. The entire narrative just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Richard, I believe this is actually contained in the report. It does talk about this, how suddenly things did improve. Um, but fails to make that the connection that you just made there. And I suppose the question is, I mean, the trouble is, as you know, the, 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 the caravan moves on, um, journalists hunt together in packs, uh, they, they very rarely uh, stand out, and if they do, they risk um, sometimes being left behind and isolated <laughs> to be picked off, if you like. The question is, well, you know, if you have looked into this, you have written this these at least two pieces, and if you were to write a third now, just setting out what you have said uh, there, what prospect might there be of it appearing in um, The Guardian or The Observer or The Telegraph or any of these newspapers? It would actually be the fourth, if I wrote another one. Uh, I mean, the, the, the final article to write will be when the Ford inquiry comes out, because it's going to be yeah. very intriguing to see how that works. Tell people what that is, would you? you just remind no, Yes, the Ford inquiry is the Labour Party's own inquiry into its leaked inquiry. <laughs> when the, 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 the big investigation into anti-Semitism, the handling of anti-Semitism was leaked in the spring, they, they announced their own inquiry into this, which will in part look at who leaked it and why and so on. But I think it is also going to, going to reinvestigate the allegations. Now, given that you now have the EHRC effectively in large measure backing up the leaked report in pointing the finger at the regime um, in charge before the spring of 2018, this creates a very difficult situation because the Labour Party has apologised to those people and yes. is in fact paying <laughs> large cool. amounts of money. Yes. So the, the Ford inquiry will be fascinating. I, I would I would forecast that it'll be released on a busy news day. <laughs> well, no doubt you'll be looking out for it, and uh, so will lots of other people. But there does, without really, I mean, this is this is part of the problem because you know people's attention spans are quite short. There's been an established view 
in the in the bulk of the British media, there's an uh, that uh, that and, and Jeremy Corbyn has himself been accused of being an anti-Semite by some of his opponents, by and particularly by one a veteran backbencher and uh, a former minister, Margaret Hodge. Um, this kind, all of this lodges in people's minds. It's very difficult to shake, um, and um, you know, and of course, once we all start talking about this report and that report and becomes more and more Kafkaesque and we get lost in the abbreviations, it, it does tend to then wait for the tide of history to return to it. Many, many years later, say, oh, perhaps a disservice happened here. Well, or an injustice. Uh, of course, the bigger issue, it goes beyond Jeremy Corbyn and the British Labour Party, which has no power uh, uh, at the moment in any event. It's an opposition. But uh, Ben, I mean... You know, we 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 look and we look around and we see that um, uh, th this this does actually mean that it's very difficult, for instance, to get a focus on issues that are happening, for instance, in the Middle East right now. I mean, there, today there are reports that this year there have been seven hundred odd um, Palestinian homes bulldozed uh, in in the occupied territories. Uh, each day, shocking things are happening in the occupied territories, but these sorts of stories. Uh, just uh, don't don't make it into the mainstream media uh, as much as they did. Partly, possibly, I would argue. Perhaps you'll tell me um, because everybody's obsessed with other things like EHRC reports or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of dynamics we could look at at, at um, the um, continual challenge um, of trying to get a focus on. Um, both a focus on Palestine as an issue, um, but a narrative that reflects the reality of what is happening to the Palestinian people um, and talks to the historic and the ongoing injustice uh, and enables people to understand this in the, in the right way of a, as an imposition of unjust power by one people over another that's led to their dispossession, um, that's led to the establishment of a state uh, that we would argue um, and by we, I mean not just the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, but numerous uh, legal scholars, political analysts, saying meets the definition of an apartheid state. Um, and it is it is extremely hard to establish those truths in mainstream political discourse. And look, um, part of um, part of the reason for that. Um, is everything we've just been talking about and I don't want to drag it back down into the Labour Party but in a way I think in you know talking about what's happening in the Labour Party um, everything's Richard said about if you read the EHRC what narratives it gives you and where the pieces if you examine them for forensically just <laughs> fall apart is absolutely accurate but in a way there's a number of things that are going on that that help to explain, I think, what's happening in the Labour Party, but then necessarily need to take us um, more broader and global in terms of what is actually happening in terms of a concerted effort to delegitimise um, the Palestinian cause uh, and to delegitimise activism for Palestine. So, look, I would say briefly, in the Labour Party, what's going on? Well, look, first of all, um, there is the existence of some anti-Semitism in the Labour Party undeniable so you know anyone who responds to all of this and says there is absolutely no anti-semitism it's all a smear uh there is no existence is talking nonsense uh, of course there is anti-semitism in the labor party as there is elsewhere it is also an undeniable truth that the extent 
of the existence of anti-Semitism has been exaggerated. If you you know take one measure of how many actual cases are there, and then what public perception has been uh, built around that, people rightly quote the Salvation Poll when people are asked how many people have been disciplined as a percentage of the Labour Party membership uh, for anti-Semitic incidents, and the general public thought 30%, uh, where the figure is way below uh, 1%. Um, so uh, it is also true that there's a collusion of two things going on. So there are people who have chosen to use the existence of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party as part of a factional struggle within the party against Corbyn that's rooted in Corbyn is a socialist and we don't want him elected. And for some of those people, the issue of Palestine is irrelevant. They don't, they don't particularly have an investment in the issue. Um, but that is also colliding with something much broader that's going on, that has a particular dynamic in the Labour Party because of the election of Corbyn, uh, but is global. And that is an attempt uh, to delegitimize the Palestinian cause and, as I say, activism for Palestine. And one of the tools, one of the mechanisms being used to achieve that, that delegitimization, is to try to frame a legitimate criticism of Israel of its laws, of its policies, talking about the impact of that on Palestine, uh, legitimate analysis of the constitutional order of the state of Israel, what type of state it is, the racist laws that it employs, uh, legitimate criticism of the ideology uh, of Zionism that led to the formation of the state and how that impacted on Palestinians. And I speak as a Palestinian, what it means, I speak as a Palestinian whose grandparents were amongst the 750,000 who were expelled from their homes uh, in 1948 for one reason alone, because they were Palestinian and because there was an attempt to create a state in which there would be a permanent Jewish majority uh, that would be given privileged rights. And so one of the tools is, is, is to um, use a definition of anti-Semitism that conflates anti-Semitism. Well, every... I, I wanted to get onto this. Uh, yeah. Um, just before I do, I mean, it may come as a, a, a well, both of you may be interested to know that, you know, what one of the um, one of the issues that was being looked at at people in the Labour Party headquarters as to, you know, whether or not you could be in breach or, of of uh, uh, party rules um, on, uh, and uh, at risk of being uh, singled out by your opponents for being um, uh, you know, out of step with the Labour Party was to argue that um, really the two-state solution for Israel uh, is over and, uh, you know, essentially Labour should look at a one-state uh, de democratic secular solution mm -hmm. for Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. uh, People take different positions about that, but that is a that is a view, is a very strong view, but is one that's actually was singled out by um, those in charge of this particular anti-Semitism unit as as one that could be um, could be held against individual party members, which is interesting and and also mm. rather disturbing. Mm. But I think from I just you know for, for the benefit of people watching this, who you get lost by all these abbreviations and all what it all means yeah, the ihrc what does it what does it what do those what do the abbreviations stand for the acronyms what does it stand for um, what is it what is it what is its definition of anti-semitism why is the labor party uh, keen to adopt it why was there a resistance from some quarters why are universities determined to adopt it what 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 is it what is it what is their sure. definition 
Okay, and I'll try and simplify this because you're right, people get lost in the acronyms uh, and in some of the narratives that have now been established around this. So the, the IHRA definition stands for the um, an organization called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. It's a, it's a body of NGOs that work internationally to try um, to um, commemorate the Holocaust, to make sure that the Holocaust is remembered and has some remit to combat anti-Semitism. It adopted a working definition of anti-Semitism um, that was a definition that had existed before but fallen to the disuse and it was sort of slightly remodeled, adopted by the IHRA. The definition in itself is um, 38 words. I think most people who look at it say it's a fairly opaque definition. Uh, Stephen Sedley, who's a former law lord, said it fails the first test of a definition uh, in that it's indefinite. It's quite difficult to understand. <laughs> um, but in and of itself is not politically problematic. It's just not a very good definition of anti-Semitism, which most people that ordinarily understand is the hatred or prejudice against Jewish people because they're Jewish. The problem then came, there was a document that was attached to the um, definition uh, that con contains a series of examples, 11 examples that says things depending on the context in which they are used. So there is this um, conditional clause. So, so depending on the context uh, could be contemporary examples of anti-Semitism. Of those 11 examples, seven of them are about types of speech around the state of Israel. There are two that are particularly politically problematic. So one is something again which is obscure in terms of what does that mean so it says it is it can be anti-semitic depending on the context to deny the jewish people their right of self-determination mm -hmm. uh, for example by describing a state of israel uh, as a racist endeavor now that's been interpreted by some to say well if you describe uh the laws of the state of israel as racist if you say that israel is a state practicing apartheid if you talk about the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians that took place in 1948, and then you describe it in those terms, uh, then that might in, be an example of an inherent anti-Semitism. So you don't have to demonstrate um, a hatred of Jews attached to that. It's inherently anti-Semitic. That's what some people are trying to push. One of the bodies, for example, is trying to push this narrative is a organization called the campaign against uh, anti-semitism which is one of the bodies that made the complaint against the labor party um it's a piece of nonsense we had a legal opinion done on this definition psc and a bunch uh, a range of groups uh, jews for justice for palestine independent jewish voices and others got a um a legal opinion from a leading human rights law in the uk um who said actually it's a nonsense to interpret it in that way um, actually, the only sense that can be made of what is not a very good definition is you have to demonstrate hatred of Jews, and it, and it is um, both wrong in terms of the definition, but it also violates other laws on freedom of expression to say that someone should be regarded as anti-Semitic and therefore their speech should be closed down, um, simply for saying that Israel is a state practicing apartheid. Most people would have a common sense understanding of that. If I describe South Africa as a you know, if, I, if in the 1980s I described it as a, an apartheid state, most people would not say, well, I think that demonstrates you have a hatred uh, towards white South Africans. <laughs> yes. Or if I describe 
and yeah. China is a state that's perpetrating human rights abuse. Most people wouldn't say, well, I wonder if you're motivated mm. by, uh, yeah. uh, by ben, hate. No, absolutely. Chinese. I'm going to come back to Richard, if I may, because, um, in fact, we're, what, somebody's just been in touch. Carlos Soto, uh, he says... Um, uh, the C, uh, this is the campaign against anti-Semitism. Its, it's charity status is being yeah. challenged in the courts. I, I don't know if that's the case or not. But I know that from what I've read that the campaign against anti-Semitism is also pursuing um, complaints against um, a, a, a further group of Labour, MP, Labour MPs, including the deputy uh, leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner. Now, mm. I mean, you know, it's... Richard, when you're doing when you're doing this work, and do you do you sometimes get the, the the impression that because these issues are so volatile and people are so nervous about them and worried about saying the wrong thing and do, that essentially that's it, people are running for the running for the barricades, um, drawing up or the drawing up the drawbridge behind them and all the rest of it, uh, and uh, essentially when people such as yourself. Uh, actually get to grips with the real issues, you find yourself under attack as well. You do find yourself under attack. I mean, I tend to try and be very forensic and, and, and factual and unpolemical in, in the pieces I've written. I, mean, I, I prefer to do that anyway, but above all on this, for precisely that reason, you know, you really have to do, do have to be on solid ground. Now, I think what's very interesting about particularly the last two pieces I've written, one, on the um, sort of investigation of Jewish people within the Labour Party for anti-Semitism, and the second on the EHRC report. Um, what's been striking between them? They've been they've been shared over fifty thousand times, which is pretty good, you know, particularly for something from from uh, Middle East Times, which is a great publication, but not one with a huge circulation. What's very striking is that that sharing is almost entirely done by people you've never heard of. Um, John, the first one actually, John Pilger tweet, um, retweeted a couple of days ago, and that makes a huge difference. Somebody like John Pilger, you know, you get a, you get a few more thousand added on straight away. Um, there is undoubtedly um, a, a chilling effect. People are, and you know, there have been a number of high-profile cases in the Labour Party that have um, served to, to 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 sort of establish this there's definitely a chilling effect people are terrified of sharing of retweeting and that sort of thing so the fact that these got retweeted over fifty thousand times between them indicates there really is a hunger out there for accurate reporting on this now it was quite striking with the first one mm -hmm. um, in particular it was retweeted by peter oborn of course uh, i'd written that one on my own but peter retweeted it matt fry also retweeted it he was someone i was working with at the time the attacks went for them. Um, it, it was almost as if there was a machinery out there that was prepared to let this sort of sort, sort of thing simmer amongst people who all agreed with each other anyway. But the minute it, it achieved a certain level of profile, it was, you know, and at that point you had people coming very aggressively. Um, but, well, I mean, it, it's interesting because I mean, I've I've seen um, one of these files that's been put together um, from the anti-Semitism unit. This was around about the time of the general election, and certainly retweeting your articles would have registered in there and would have been part of the, oh, yeah. the procedure to investigate. 
Uh, not altogether clear under which rules, but that would most certainly be there. Yes, I'm sure there's a file on me somewhere, I've no doubt. I, <laughs> I suppose someone's... Well, I'd be rather offended if there was. I'd be disappointed <laughs> if you didn't have one. But, um, yeah, but look, we... Hi, it says uh, Sarah. She says... Um, she says, where, where do I find Richard's articles? Uh, yes, well, actually, she's found them because she's, she's actually <laughs> it's Middle East eye. She's answered her own question. So there we are. Um, yes, pe people are busy, actually. But yes, it's, it's, it is interesting, this, because, um, you know, there are, such, there are such broader and bigger issues involved. I mean, for instance, I wouldn't say this is a... You cannot possibly say this is a direct consequence uh, because uh, it happened before the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, but certainly, uh, the in terms of the UK Labour Party again, there it was very interesting to see that uh, a senior backbencher, Stephen Kinnock, recently from the Foreign Affairs um, Committee, spoke out and in favour of taking economic sanctions against Israeli companies operating out of the occupied territories. Um, now you can agree with that or disagree with that. However, Stephen Kinnock was, by all accounts, hauled in by the shadow foreign secretary, Lisa Nandy, and to also told by Keir Starmer that this was unacceptable. I mean, is this, Ben, an example of what you fear may happen more if uh, the debate effectively gets closed down and people get so nervous that anything to do with Palestine, they run a mile, just in case the press gets upset that, about it? That, that's one of the dangers for us. And look, when, when we go back to the issue of the IHRA definition and this attempt to get all public bodies to adopt it, um, the two things worth remembering, first of all, is it has no legal standing. Um, and uh, so no public body is obliged to adopt it. Uh, and there are important laws, in particular uh, Article 10 of the Human Rights Act, that give people protection under the law of freedom of expression. And partly, probably as a result of that, there are very few examples actually of the IHRA definition being directly employed to prevent an event happening. There are some, but there are very few. Uh, but part of the strategy is what we've just been talking about. So to create a chilling effect, uh, so it makes people reticent, it makes people concerned. And this is part of our challenge, because one of the effects of that, here we are on Palestine Deep Dive. If you said, Mark, there are all sorts of things we want people to focus on at the moment. The, the ongoing threat of annexation. Israel's announcement of a further 4,000 settlement units. What Israel is doing at the moment in maintaining the siege of Gaza and the impact on Palestinians. All these fundamental issues that are about people's core rights and how their lives are being impacted at the moment. And what we're we doing, we're talking about anti-Semitism. This is a conversation that Israel and all its allies wants us to be having. And the danger is, how do we do two things? So how do we point all of this out? This is why it's important that we, we, we do have this conversation. But how do we point this out? How do we protect our rights? How do we um, identify two important things that where the threat is, there are, there are two ways in which this threatens it. First of all, it threatens the rights of Palestinians to bring the facts of our history, the facts of our dispossession into the public domain um, and are, require of others, ask of others that they take action uh, to support the realization of our rights. And then it affects the rights of other people uh, to call for action. Um, so that's 
that's those are the rights that are being affected. The danger, as I say, is the chilling effect that people cease to speak up, or people feel disempowered, or people feel I am reticent to say anything. So whilst um, identifying what's going on, whilst taking action, so one of you know simple ways, for example, PSC has just produced a legal guide for students on campus. It's appalling we have to do that. It's appalling that young people becoming politically active, engaged in human rights issues, campaigning for justice, have to be advised. Here are the ways you can resist attempts if they are made to close down your legitimate activities. But that's the space in which we operate. But what we also have to do is crucial is we empower people. Uh, we empower people and we don't contribute to the chilling effect ourselves. And um, I've had experiences where I've, I've had people say to me, you know, in the Labour Party at the moment, you can't speak up at all for Palestine across the whole Labour movement. You're not allowed to do that. It's, and it's not tr true. And, you know, two months ago, we had the TUC passing one of these most important motions on Palestine, which for the very first time was the TUC saying, actually, we recognise what's going on as apartheid and there are consequences. That that, but that is the TUC, not the Labour Party, though, isn't That's it? That's the TUC, not the Labour Party, but the, yeah. the, 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 the trade union movement yeah. is an important bulwark oh, no, 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 again, I, I, against yeah. attempts to push that. Yeah, yeah. So we have to be realistic. And you asked a question about, yeah, what am I worried about in terms of the dangers? Um, we understand what, at the moment, what is Keir Starmer doing? as leader of the Labour Party, he is, dis he is trying to detoxify this issue by accepting all of the narratives about anti-Semitism and the consequences that flow from that. Now, what we know is, alongside that, the demands that will be being made on him, and I'm not speculating, they're overt. Go and read articles by people like Luke Haykhurst in the, uh, from We Believe in Israel and other organisations in the Jewish Chronicle that, that are effectively saying the sign that you are um, removing anti-Semitism from the Labour Party is you shift policy on Palestine. Mm -hmm. Is that this becomes a friendly, friendly space again for those who want to advocate for Israel. So we know the pressure in that context. If it is true, it may well be that that dressing down of Stephen Kinnock happened. Then it is in that context that we have to understand it. So we have to call that out and we have to say this must not happen. But we also need to empower people like Stephen Kinnock, partly by saying, let's look precisely at what he said. He called uh, for the implementation of a ban on the import of settlement goods. I wouldn't even define that as a sanction. That's not a sanction, that's the implementation of international law. That would be saying the UK government actually needs to live up to responsibilities it has under international law. And secondly, he said Israel um, basically profiting from the sale of settlement goods is equivalent, is the same as profiting from the proceeds of crime. Well, it is. It's a violation of international law. And well, it is making profit on the basis yeah, of a violation of law. So his words were absolutely accurate, and he should be defended on that basis and empowered do, to do keep you saying think, the things that I he's mean, saying. If I, if I could just come in there, because, yeah. I mean, you'll, you'll perhaps let people know a bit more about this as well. You know, some weeks ago, a group of prominent uh, Palestinians put a letter together mm. um, that they, because there is this real concern about what you both described as a chilling effect. Actually, I yeah. just think that's very... Uh, a very accurate and very reasonable um, uh, statement to make. Uh, and you had this letter from, well, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about it and, and what happened with it. Yeah, well, so, well, we, the, the letter, um, 
I mean, you've described us as prominent Palestinians. I was one of the signatories, so I, I probably should be slightly more modest about that. But but many of the people on there were certainly prominent and more prominent than me. Um, but there was a bunch of UK Palestinians, some members of the Labour Party, some not. Um, some of whom we've written previously, 2018, to The Guardian about these issues, uh, about the risks to the rights of Palestinians, framed in the way I've just described it. This is about the rights. This affects the core rights of the Palestinian people uh, as a dispossessed people, as an oppressed people, uh, to bring the facts of that dispossession and that oppression into the public domain. And so we identified what are we concerned about uh, in the direction of travel in the Labour Party about how these rights have been affected. Uh, some of that address the chilling effect. Um, I know what you're referring to, Mark, in, in what happened. Um, it's an example of the chilling effect. Um, it was very difficult to get that letter published. So we ended up publishing it ourselves and promoting it uh, on social media. Let me give you another example. But again, hold in mind, people listening to this, what I've said about the TUC. So this should not be a council of despair. It's about an acknowledgement and a risk and the action that we need to take. Uh, but it's about empowering people to go forward. Um, but in the um, two years ago, when the uh, US embassy moved the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, when the US moved the embassy, its embassy to Jerusalem, and you'll recall uh, there were protests. Um, <clears throat> the in Gaza, people yeah. protesting, um, and uh, Israel began a process of. Um, shooting protesters. Um, we held a series of demonstrations as the Great March of Return began. Uh, we couldn't, during that period, find a Labour MP who would come and speak on a platform. Um, until the day that the embassy was actually moved, there were protests in Palestine and 62 people were killed in a single day. 62 people shot down. The following day, we held another protest and about 24 MPs uh, Labour MPs to that, plus a whole load of other MPs. Now, I said to somebody on the day, maybe cynically, uh, I felt appropriately, uh, now we know how many Palestinians have to die in a single day uh, before people recover their moral backbone. Mm. Uh, but there was a reality about that. There was a process that was very clear to me of people being reluctant. Why? Because they knew each platform we stand on is going to be examined, if anybody in the crowd says something, has a placard that's offensive, that's going to be attached to us. So that whole climate that was trying to uh, suggest that somehow advocating for Palestine, uh, you should be treated with suspicion, was affecting people's willingness to speak up. Mm. Now, we got through that period, but that's an example of the chilling effect in place, that, that actually if you go and stand up um, and you stand up in support of basic rights, and if you stand up uh, to talk about a process in which people were being gunned down, including children, mm -hmm. including the disabled, medics being shot, all of this documented by international organizations, that if you speak up on that, uh, then you are going to be treated with suspicion so people were unwilling to. Eventually they but did, the because, because it, it was overwhelming and they felt, actually, I have to speak. Yeah. But that's an example of the chilling effect in, in place. Although even, even on that day, the Labour Friends of Israel initial um, tweet on the subject effectively blamed Palestinians. Yeah. For yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah. I, was, I was going to ask you, Richard. I mean, may, maybe maybe you can't really 
answer this, but I mean, the issue of anti-Semitism is obviously, it's rent the Labour Party apart. You could say at another level, at least the Labour Party's trying to get to grips with it. But if you're looking in from outside, you, you write for the Middle East Eye, um, people looking in from outside the rest of the world probably be rather surprised to know that the British Labour Party has turned itself into itself uh, in, in such a way. Um, and that, uh, you know, the fact that there's anti-Semitism and racism elsewhere in society and in all of the other political parties, one imagines as well, really doesn't seem to feature at all. Or Islamophobia doesn't seem to feature at all anywhere in the discourse. So what did, what, do, you, do you have any impression as to what readers of Middle East I make of this situation you'd have to you you'd have to ask them that i mean i'm a freelancer and i write for them um uh, occasionally but i think um i think one thing that people don't appreciate and ben will be more aware of this than me that western europe and north america and particularly britain and america are a bit of a strange white bubble um the the perception that zionism you know is, is the belief in an ethnostate uh, that you know, there's something a little bit racist about the very concept, um, which has been now designated as absolutely beyond the pale in Britain and America and in Germany as well. You know, is a pretty, certainly in the Muslim world, obviously, and the Arab world, is a pretty widely held perception. So I think it's, it's very, very odd. And I believe, and I certainly hope, that in decades to come, people will look back with astonishment and horror and shame as well, actually, that through 2018, during the events that Ben is describing, the Great March of Return, the entire British political and media establishment spent its time obsessively scrutinising for racism, not the defenders of the people being shot, but the defenders, or at least the apologists for, the soldiers crouching behind Sandburm several hundred metres away. And I think a time will come when people will look back on that period with absolute astonishment. Well, we have here Robert, um, Robert in London. Uh, he asks, uh, as a non-Palestinian, I've been so appalled at how Palestinian voices get ignored in the Labour Party and by Westminster in general. I often read and support the open letters by British Palestinians raising their concerns. But why don't Palestinians in the UK go one step further and institutionalise their demands. Why don't they create a body, something like a, a council of British Palestinians, which could voice the Palestinian perspective on these issues, uh, like how Zionism is an ideology underlying the oppression of Palestine, Palestinians today? So what, what about that? I should put that to you, um, uh, to you, Ben. What about, I mean, you're, I mean, you're doing this job, of course, anyway. Do you need another organisation? Do you need to, we wouldn't be a rival, it would be an ally, but do you need another one? Um, look, I mean, that speaks to a number of issues, I think. I mean, on one, um, there, I mean, there are a, um, a um, number of bodies that uh, seek to represent the Palestinian community in the UK. I think I'm, I'm, I'm right in saying, I'm sure somebody's going to correct me if I've got these figures wrong. There's about 20 plus thousand uh, Palestinians in the UK. Um, the it look it, 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 it speaks to a number of things it it it, it speaks to um the um disempowerment of that community uh, it is not straightforward to say we, we create a body that body by definition is then uh, going to have influence 
and power, etc. There are a whole range of dynamics that um, affect that. There's also another issue which I want to raise because I think one of the that speaks somewhat to this question because one of the um, one of the issues that the Institute for Race Relations has spoken very well about this, and Liz Facchetti, the director, there's written some very good articles about this, which is how is all of this narrative undermining what ought to be a consistent and clear approach um, to tackling racism, the coherent anti-racist politics. And, and you know, the concerns they've expressed are in a number of ways. One, that we're separating out anti-Semitism from other forms of racism. And there's another number of problems with that. One is about hierarching racism. Um, you know, each type of racism has its own distinct features, but a consistent anti-racism uh, addresses all forms of racism um, consistently. Uh, and speaks to that. And I don't want to get into a completing narrative. There, there are legitimate things that Palestinians could say at the moment. Um, within the Labour Party, as Palestinian voices, if they become silenced, then Palestinians can say, actually, this creates an unsafe space for me. Uh, this may be an example of anti-Palestinian racism. We made that point in the letter that we wrote. But what I don't want to get to is a competing narrative is about racism. I want a consistent understanding of racism. The other point the Institute for Race Relations make, our understanding of racism, what is happening at the moment is people are focusing on individual prejudice, uh, on examples of individual ignorance or hatred, mostly manifested through what people are saying on social media. And all most of the examples of anti-Semitism Labour Party are gleaned from people trawling through people's social media account and fi finding things, sometimes very offensive things, that individuals have said uh, over a, a, a time period, sometimes many, many years ago. That's not really how we should be tackling racism. Racism is about a structural imposition of power. It's about disadvantage. It's about people being excluded from opportunities. And tackling racism consistently also means, going back to Richard's point, how do we understand ethno-nationalism? How do we understand racism as manifested through states and state structures? And how do we tackle that? Uh, and that's where we would argue that Palestinian cause is absolutely central and integral uh, to, a, to an anti-racist politics. You cannot be a consistent anti-racist if you ignore one of the most egregious examples of state racism that exists and has existed for a long time. So I'm not sure I want to go into place of, well, let's, you know, absolutely having community bodies that strengthen communities and have representation is important. We can have a legitimate debate about why are some community bodies listened to more than others. You could have a debate about why has the EHRC not listened to the Muslim Council of Britain when it said we want an investigation of Islamophobia. And those are all legitimate questions, but in a way they're not the solution. I think we want to say actually what we're doing at the moment is not actually tackling racism in a serious way. And I would say, for example, to the leadership of the Labour Party at the moment, what do you want to do at the moment? Do you want to detoxify a political issue that you think is problematic for you by doing the things that are being required of you and taking the steps you see as necessary? Or do you actually want to address racism seriously? Do you want to address it seriously? And if you want to do that, then you really do look at your policy towards Palestine you look at your anti-colonial policy, you look at how you want to root out all forms of racism in the party, you want to look at what you are doing about structural inequality in society. That's a consistent and clear approach to tackling 
uh, racism. That's the way I think. Um, not just the Labour Party, but all the institutions should be tackling these well, issues. Well, you could argue, Ben, that it's a bigger argument for a political party like Labour to be taking out into the much wider community, where so, a lot of basic prejudices are simply not being challenged anymore, yeah. because it's all internalised, um, or, or it is largely internalised. Look, we've got a, um, another point. This is from, from Marie Lynham. It's a very long point, so I have to... Uh, apologies, apologies, Marie, I have to cut it a little bit down, but she says, uh, the chilling effect, in simple language, is a silencing of free, uh, free speech, and in this case, to silence the public regarding one of the most scandalous pieces of ethnic uh, cleansing of our age. Uh, silence so that the US and Israel continue their dance together without us even analyzing uh, how it is that this US-Israel relationship works and what its aims are. Um, so she says... Uh, is, it, is this really, is this essentially all really about softening up uh, the public, softening up the Labour Party, softly, so that uh, people are, are, are forced to side with the West against the perceived enemies of the West? Uh, and she, she, she pulls out to Russia and China as being, the, is this part of a... Is this part of a sort of a wider strategy? Richard, I, I'll ask you. Yeah, I, I, I think I always felt with the whole anti-Semitism thing in the Labour Party, I think it clearly was used for political ends. It became turbocharged because it was such an effective weapon for destroying Jeremy Corbyn. But it was such an effective weapon in large part because I think most people, most of the time, were being absolutely sincere. I, 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 my personal impression always has been that Zionists, as a general rule, and even including liberal Zionists, you know, liberal Zionists, um, just don't get anti-Zionism. And they, they simply don't understand the strength of feeling and can only interpret it as anti-Zionism. And I, I think um, this comes, I think the Palestinians are a victim of having been colonized by the one group of people for whom any collective expression of hostility towards is, for very understandable reasons, absolute anathema to European leftists and liberals. But I think the effect of that is we have an enormous blind spot. You know, the great tragedy of Israel is it's two things. It is a reaction to the appalling experiences of Jewish people in Europe. At the same time, it is inherently unavoidably an act of brutal racism towards the indigenous population of Palestine. It is those two things at the same time. And what we're all very, very aware of the first, what seems to me entirely unreasonable is that Palestinians are being told they're not allowed to articulate the second. I mean, Radakami, who I spoke to, was very powerful on this, saying, look, if you want to disagree with me, fine. If you want to dispute my analysis, fine. But you can't outlaw it. And, you know, I, I totally get Ben's point, not wanting to get into competing narratives of racism. But it's this is a, a debate that has been couched entirely in terms of self-definition, self-determination. Mm -hmm. The IHRA definition so obviously so brazenly deprives the Palestinian people of that right. It is quite extraordinary that that point is never made. And it's reflective of the fact that in this debate, Palestinian voices have been absolutely excluded and sidelined. 
in a way that, again, I'm sorry, is simply racist. Mm. And Richard and Ben, we're, we're, uh, unfortunately, we're coming towards the end now. But I mean, one other issue that we could just discuss briefly, perhaps, is the fact that we've been talking about Palestinian opinion um, and Britain, Jewish opinion, as though they, these are great monoliths. Um, and it's apparent to anybody who's taken any interest in all of this that actually opinion in the Jewish community uh, is often divided. Uh, in Britain, is divided. What's been very striking in the context of this uh, UK Labour Party fracas is that there are very strong, powerful Jewish voices uh, who actually profoundly disagree with with uh, the uh, with what's happened with uh, Corbyn, for instance, and have been speaking out. But they find very difficult to get their voices in the media. And more broadly, I mean, there's a completely different approach in the Jewish community to whole aspects of Israel itself, um, as we know. So um, I was actually just by by chance when I was working for the United Nations and an invitation came in um, to the Secretary General, I was asked to go on his behalf uh, to meet um, and pass on a message of support to Hasidic Jewish communities in, in the United States who don't even recognize the state of Israel because there hasn't been a second coming yet. So, I mean, life is complicated, opinion is divided. So I suppose I'd just like to leave this one with both of you, Ben and Richard. I mean, this idea that you have these monolithic views um, and actually we, this fear of offending means that we simply cannot debate these issues. What, 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 where, where do you stand on that, Ben? Ben, you go first. Well, look, one, one quick point. Um, you remember during the Panorama documentary, um, looking at all of this, that Seamus Milne was attacked for um, his supposed interference in one of the cases um, where he, he questioned somebody's suspension. Um, what was missed in terms of the context of what he was saying, and it's, it's valid and relevant to what, what you just said, Mark, what he was saying was, look, if we are finding as we've got mounting cases of anti-Semitism, there's a, there's a significant number of Jewish members of the Labour Party who are being accused of anti-Semitism. Um, that might perhaps tell us that there's a problem here, <laughs> that this isn't. Of course, there might be Jews who are anti-Semitic, but if we're finding a large portion of people being accused of anti-Semitism who are Jewish, it might tell us there's something else. So, of course, what it's reflecting are debates within the Jewish community about how Zionism is to be understood uh, and a number of people being disciplined within the Labour Party for statements that effectively were reflective of their anti-Zionist positions. And you're right, no community is sort of monolithic. And I think the other point I would make, there is a truth, of course, um, that um, when we are looking at how do we understand racism and interpret people's experiences of racism, the, the victims of racism have a, a special privileged place. There's a basic principle that says, look, if I experience something as racist, you should listen to me. But that doesn't follow through. And the McPherson principle is often cited, but misconstrued. Um, it doesn't mean, well, if I say something is racist, it automatically is. And on this issue as well, if we say, look, in defining anti-Semitism, um, when we're using a definition of anti-Semitism that specifically then goes to the terrain of what can you say about Israel and what can be said about Palestinian dispossession and how can experiences be described, you cannot exclude Palestinian voices from that conversation. Um, because as Richard has just said, 
um, you know, Zionism has become a contested term. And there are those who say, no, Zionism is very simple. It's always simply meant the self-determination of the Jewish people and the right for them um, to, to have a, a, a homeland. It, it, it never meant that. And Zionism always meant the right of the Jewish people, the claim of the right of the Jewish people to found a state in Palestine. That was always going to be problematic, given that the time when Zionism came to the fore in the late 19th century as a political movement, over 90% of the population of Palestine was Palestinian Arab. So it was always going to conflict with the rights of self-determination uh, of the Palestinian people. And since mm -hmm. 1948, Zionism has meant mm -hmm. the right uh, to sustain the state of Israel as a Jewish state, meaning a state that can sustain a Jewish majority and give them privileged rights. Again, as Richard has pointed out, um, that, that's problematic. That is racist. You cannot allocate rights to people on the basis of their race, ethnicity, religion, uh, culture, however one wishes to define Jewishness. So we've got to have an absolute understanding of these issues. As Mark said, we've got to understand that people are not monolithic, and we've got to root all of this conversation uh, in a proper understanding of what racism is and how we need to tackle it. And the problem with all of this is we're now in a place where the narratives around this um, have become so dishonest, um, where the debate has become so toxic that people are actually frightened or unable uh, to ha actually interrogate these issues in the way they need to be interrogated. Well, look, uh, Richard, I'll come to you, actually, and this is, this is another question. So, uh, the, the last question, we will, unfortunately, we've got time for. Um, and this is actually, this is from Roger Waters. I don't know if you're able to answer this question from him. He'd like to hear from, from you on, and also from Ben, on the legal action for defamation uh, by John Ware. And John Ware is, of course, a Panorama reporter against the Jewish Voices for Labour members, uh, Paddy French and Naomi Winborn Idrisi. I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, case, but have you... No, I'm certainly not going to stray into <laughs> making comments on legal cases. Uh, you know, one of the issues you have writing about this is, uh, I'll choose my words carefully, John, John Ware and Mark Lewis um, pursue people who probe that Panorama programme very aggressively, shall we say. Um, and people have to be very, very um, careful. The Jewish Voice for Labour is an organisation that the, the the article I wrote, the wrong sort of Jew, was very spent. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to them. I have a lot of admiration for them, and I think they're very brave people who have been treated appallingly. You know, the 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 abuse, the death threats, you know, that, that they get is dreadful. Now. They they know perfectly well they're not representative of broader British the British Jewish community they don't claim to be. Um, Jonathan Friedland describes them as a, a, a tiny fringe I think. Uh, now my experience from writing these articles and just the response you get to these articles is while it's while their anti-Zionist position or non-Zionist position is clearly a minority view within the British Jewish community it's not it's not quite as fringe. As Jonathan Friedman would have us believe, I, you know, it seems I'm not Jewish. I'm not going to pretend to speak for Jewish people at all. But it seems to me there there are clearly more either anti or non-Zionist Jewish people in Britain than the, the media would have us believe. Having said that, having said that, I think we have to confront the reality. 
um, the, 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 the British Jewish community, like the American Jewish community, is overwhelmingly supportive of Israel and overwhelmingly supportive of Zion, you know, the, the, the principles of, uh, of Zionism. If one believes Zionism is racist, that, that's hugely problematic. It creates a really difficult situation and, uh, you know, you just can't shy away from it. Mm. Ben, your, your final thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, like Richard, I'm loath to, and I don't know the detail of, of that um, case, but I'll just pick up on the point that, uh, that um, Richard has made, that, um, look, Zionism is a political ideology. Now, if, if it is true, and it may very well be, that the majority of the Jewish community in the UK support Zionism, you know, let's say they support it in the way that I've defined it. Let's say they say we believe that Israel does have a right to maintain itself as a state with a permanent Jewish majority. It has the right to pursue policies to sustain that permanent Jewish majority. Uh, and it has the right to accord that permanent majority privileged status over Palestinian citizens of the state. As Richard said, that's problematic. You cannot say, well, be, it, it, that I wish to attach that ideology to my identity and therefore it acquires a protected status. If it's wrong, absolutely. if it's racist, if it's immoral, um, then it doesn't matter the identity of the person who's propounding that ideology. It has to be challenged. And not to do so, not to do so, is to endorse a racist position. So people have to be able to do that. Uh, they have a fundamental right to do that. I'd say we have an obligation. We have an obligation. If something is racist, we have an obligation to tackle it, to address it. Um, and it doesn't matter, as I say, uh, you, you know, there is nobody who has a protected identity that says, if, if I believe these things and I believe they're central to my identity, uh, then I should be able to sustain them. Yes. Ben? Uh, Richard, uh, thank you to you both. I think we've had a fascinating discussion today. I do hope that people who are watching um, will, when this has been edited down, spread it around, get this out, because we want as many people as possible to actually be exposed to cool heads and, uh, and arguments and debate that have, has been well thought through and arrived at through careful, careful and considered uh, thought calibration. So, Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Richard Sanders, very much indeed. We'll hope, hopefully, you'll both come on again. Um, on Friday, uh, our guest will be Lawrence Wilkerson. And Lawrence is the retired US Army Colonel who served as Secretary of State for Colin Powell, uh, as, as, as his Chief of Staff, by a big for Colin Powell. Um, and uh, he's a distinguished visiting professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary and recently worked on a project assessing, and this would be very, very topical, we might even know what his project has assessed when we, when we hear the election results, but he has been working on this project assessing all scenarios if Trump refuses to leave office should he lose the election. So that's uh, former US Colonel uh, Lawrence Wilkerson on Palestine Deep Dive this Friday at 4 p.m. UK time. Until then, and thank you once again to Ben and Richard, all the best and bye-bye.